Welcome to the Ill Shift for Teens podcast, a show where I team up with a thought leader and we discuss a new topic question that will help you better understand your teens. I'm your host, Mark Tucker, co-author of O-Shift for Teens and its accompanying workshop kit and curriculum. This super easy to facilitate, life-changing material is being used by folks just like you throughout the United States and beyond. Head to OShift.com and choose one of the many ways you can become involved in this worldwide movement. Well, Christmas is just around the corner, and for those of you who have been paying attention, you know that tomorrow is the last day of our special on all O-Shift books and O-Shift for teen books. We normally run those for $14.95. They're on sale for $10 a piece, and we've had many, many of you purchased large amounts of those, so you can hand them out to friends and loved ones and coworkers and people that you like and people that you don't like as well, and uh, get them to shift and change their lives just like you've had the opportunity to change yours. Not to mention, it takes care of you know, the stress of giving gifts for Christmas. So check it out. Head to oshift.com and uh, pull down the shop menu and you'll see them there. And if you buy 10 or more, you get a free t-shirt. Good stuff. So this week, I'm super excited because my guest is the teen whisperer, Mike Linderman. He's a cowboy from Montana, a guy that I've been following for some time. And the topic he chose was how do we handle teens fluctuating moods and hormones? What a great topic. So I just got off the phone with him and what a wonderful conversation that Mike and I had about this topic that so many of us parents and folks that work with teens just scratch our heads about when you never know what kind of kid is going to show up walking through the door. So it was just a wonderful conversation and you're going to absolutely love it. So let's get right to that conversation with the teen whisperer, Mike Linderman. My guest today is Mike Linderman. Mike Linderman is a teen therapist unlike any other. He's a real-life cowboy from Montana who counsels some of the country's most troubled teens. Most of the teens he treats are angry, abused, violent, and dangerous. Yet despite their difficult pasts, he's achieved extraordinary success helping to turn their lives around. Mike also wrote the foreword to O-Shift for Teens and his own book, The Teen Whisperer, how to Break Through the Silence and Secrecy of Teenage Life has been a huge inspiration to me, and I strongly recommend you pick up a copy for yourself. Mike Linderman, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, you bet. It's, it's exciting to get you on the show. You know, um, I spent my formative years in Wyoming, and I tell you, I, I, I guess I don't think I was tough enough to, to stay. I think I, think I had to move. You've got to be pretty tough to, to live in that part of the country. I don't know if it's tough or silly. One or the other, I guess. You know, either one would probably do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna err on the side of um, I'm just silly and maybe a little senile as I get older because I like, you know, we got a couple inches of snow yesterday. I got all excited. I get to run a snowplow now. <laughs> Is that what it takes? That's what it takes, I think. <clears throat> <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, a few years ago, and of course, Mike. And I, we, we connected uh, several years ago, and it was when I was doing research for our own uh, book, O-Shift for Teens. And uh, I, there was a, a few really key books that helped me, I think, sort of develop in my own expertise. And that was your book, Mike, which was The Teen Whisperer. And so I, I'm, I'm a big fan and excited to have you on the show. Where does The Teen Whisperer come from? That's, that's your nickname. 
Well, and nicknames are never effective if you apply if you're the one that gives yourself the nickname. So that's not the case here. I, uh, um, I, you know what? I've just been working with teens for I don't at that point. I think when I picked up this uh, that nickname, so to speak, from the book uh, from the authors of the book Comeback, uh, Claire and Mia Fontaine. Um, I was just working with kids and and doing what I do, and um, all of a sudden when when uh, Comeback was published. I had been deemed the, the teen whisperer just simply because a number of the kids that I was treating at that point in time had had a lot of um, struggles connecting with any adult, um, let alone therapists. But, you know, typically by the time I see a kid, they've been through, you know, four or five, ten uh, different therapists and have never really had a connection. And um, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, both by venue and just by personality, I'm, I'm typically able to connect with some of these more difficult kids. And I'll be honest, they kind of like that, you know, that old Montana cowboy thing because I'm not what they, you know, typically expect in a therapist. It's different. I don't have to approach it, um, you know, from behind a mahogany desk. And, you know, I'd rather sit with them on a log somewhere in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the woods looking at a creek with that approach. And, um, and the book come back and then the subsequent the Teen Whisperer book, that nickname kind of stuck. Now, Mike, I know you've told this story, had to tell this story a million times with interviews and and so on, but quickly, what is it about your approach? These kids that obviously are from some pretty troubled paths in many cases um, sort of open up to you, or or how do you make progress with these kids when when nobody else has been able to? I've had a number of young interns or young counselors, and and even some some counselors have been in the field for a while kind of work under me and um, or work around me, I guess I wouldn't say under me, but work around me. And, and I've always told them, try not to be too much of a therapist. Work really, really hard to be a person first. These kids have already had plenty of therapists. Be somebody that they can look at when when the world's falling down around them. Be somebody that they can look at that is a safe place to land. No matter how bad they screwed up, no matter how well they're doing, you're going to meet them right where they're at. You're going to meet them uh, being kind and gentle and being accepting of it. Um, even when they're incredibly ticked off at you specifically for you know something they think you did or something that um, that maybe you actually did do, um, be okay with that. Let the, Give them permission to be angry with you. That's a normal part of relationships. So, Mark, it comes down, and, and anybody that works in this field for very long, the number one thing that they know, the number one thing that we've got to do is build the relationship first. Had a therapist, uh, a licensed clinical social worker, tell me last week. She goes, I've been, "I was doing this for a long time before we started working together." And the first, the, the thing that you taught me that's now first and foremost on my mind is you really must build a relationship with them first before you can actually start getting them to do some of the really hard, tough internal work. And I yeah. think that's the key, Mark. I think that. You have to be a person. They have to know that you know that you're invested, that you're that you're in it for the long haul. Even if things get even if things get ugly, um, they like to see you fall down once in a while. I mean, they they like to see you be fallible and make mistakes and stub your toe and and say that you know say the sh word out loud, and they're like, oh well, maybe he's not perfect. Um, right. Those things. Set that they set the tone for them to be able to make mistakes and then come face to face with you and go like, hey, I made a mistake, I screwed up, and I think I'm going to be okay. I think that's key. You know, it, it, it brings up the uh, concept of vulnerability, and it's something that I, I really like uh, to think about uh, and advise parents and uh, youth advocates. 
how does this trans a lot of a lot of my listeners are the parents of teens and of course they're not therapists or they don't necessarily work with large groups of teens how does this translate to parents well one of the uh one of the things that i think parents it's really, really hard for parents, and, and it makes sense. It's rightfully so very, very difficult. Is when their teen ends up in a position in life where uh, they're starting to engage in what I call knucklehead behaviors. Um, yeah. It, it triggers the emotions for the parents because oftentimes parents kind of feel like, you know what, I don't, I don't know how to handle this, and I'm screwing up, and, you know, my kid's, you know, kid's kind of having some struggles, so I must be failing as a parent really encouraged to, you know, remove yourself from, you know, don't take it personally. Be able to allow your, your team to be all over the map, to be emotional, to be frustrated, to be sad. Um, and you continue to stay very staunchly in the, I'm, um, it's that balanced adult ego state, if you look at transactional analysis. Um, you are, you know, they're, you're there to seek to understand and to help guide and help them get to a point to where they can come to their own conclusions and make their own decisions. But your key is, is, to, is to be that safe place. Model for them how to be emotional. Model for them how to be emotional without being over-emotional. Um, adolescents, honestly, have a tendency to be over-emotional because they find it's a way to be able to kind of manage other people's behaviors, control and manipulate. So if you can stay in this, you know, can stay a very adult, stay in managing your emotions and don't, don't set yourself up for failure by, by getting angry and disrespectful. Model for them the way to be hurt and sad um, while still holding very healthy boundaries. Um, a lot of what I see, and Mark, you may see it as well, is that parents will set a boundary or, or set a consequence that's just it's just unrealistic. You're grounded. You're grounded for two years. Well, right. how do you maintain grounding for two years? And how, as an adolescent, if you're grounded for two years, can you look at it and and care about not earning more consequences if you've already gotten the biggest consequence for this <laughs> unsurmountable amount of time? I mean, there's just no there's no light at the end of the tunnel for them. So right. it's about staying balanced. It's about, you know, and parents doing their own work, really paying attention to themselves and keeping themselves from getting, you know, getting wrapped up in the emotion of the situation. Man, you've brought up a number of strands that I think would each make, like, excellent shows. Uh, but I want to get to the topic, which is uh, – completely relevant now uh, listeners when I send uh, when, when I communicate with my guests I send them out a list of uh, potential topics to discuss and um, Mike you pick how do I handle my teens fluctuating moods and hormones now this this is a topic I was super excited to talk about because I think that many parents of teens many teen advocates are completely baffled by this topic you know how do i it's like who is this person showing up so you've just given some advice of how we can sort of model behavior but the people these these kids walking through the door is like you never know what you're going to get what, what were you thinking about when uh when you chose that as a topic you know i currently work in a a, a therapeutic boarding school that's i, I work with 30 girls so if you want to talk about mood fluctuations, um, <laughs> I'm, I deal with that all day, every day. Um, so let me, let me tell you a story, and maybe this story will, will give some, uh, an example of some modeling. 
um, a young lady had come in, um, and she had been um, she had chosen to, to infract some pretty serious rules, and so she was she had earned herself some consequences, and um, she had stated that she really needed to talk to me, so I brought her into my office. I brought her in, and she sat down for a second, and I did what I always do. I sit in my chair, lean my chair back a little bit, and kick my boots up on the desk, and, and so I just looked at her and said, well, tell me what's going on, and she she blew. She started literally yelling and cursing, and, and she was animated, and she, she picked up a Kleenex box off of my desk and threw it across the room and stomped her feet and knocked something else off of, uh, off of a, you know, a table. And she stopped just long enough to take a breath, and I just looked at her and I said, well, hon, why don't you have a seat here, and let's see if we can figure this out. And she stopped. And I used that tone of voice. So my rule of thumb is is that the higher they get, and remember, it's different for me as as a mental health clinician, as somebody who's working with kids rather than a parent. But the louder the kids get in my office, the more escalated they get, the more comatose I become. Yeah. I want to bring them to my level. I want to bring them to a level in which they can, they can I give them the opportunity to emote and get it all out. And then we come back and, and, and talk to them about, okay, so now we've identified the emotions. We've identified a lot of the stuff that's going on here. Let's, let's talk about the problem at hand. Let's pay real close attention to what the real issue is. We talked. We, we've now emoted and gotten it all outside of ourselves. But what's the real issue for this young lady? It was simply that she felt like she'd failed again, and this was, mm-hmm. you know, this was basically the story of her life: this failure after failure after failure. So the key out of that is to not follow their emotions. One of the key things that I teach parents is the twelve rules for my life. And rule number one is I'll be hundred percent responsible for myself and two others. 100% of the time. And so as you're responsible for yourself and managing your behaviors and your, you know, paying attention to your self-talk and your moods, you're able to help your kids shift by your modeling. And here we are using that word shift, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, well, you know, another key thing is as they're emoting and as they're feeling, rule number three is, is, is I will not ask why. Why is not important? It's only for learning concepts. Why is a question that has a tendency to come from a place of judgment. So if you want to start an an argument with your adolescent, start start your conversation with them, you know, like, so why did you do that? That's a great time to get them going, well, why not? They'll immediately come back because they'll be defensive because it, it feels like it comes from judgment. What I encourage parents to use instead is help me understand. Help me understand what drove you to that behavior. Help me understand how you got to that decision. Because help me understand means that I'm right here in the trenches with you seeking to understand so that we can work through this together. As we're dealing with that escalated teen, it's really, it's really important to continue to be loving and gentle, um, to, to stay real calm with them and be loving and gentle because they're going to do everything they can to hook you into your old argumentative behaviors because then they've got company in it and they feel like they have some semblance of control. makes no sense whatsoever because with two angry people, we have you know, um, not, even, not even 1% control of where, where the conversation is going, but they're typically, they oftentimes will use... Uh, anger arguments as a way to wear parents wear parents down and get what it was that they wanted to begin with 
you know, oh, uh, Mike, really I saw, long answer, Mark. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. I want to highlight it because I found this happening as a teacher. And what I would do is, uh, what, I think what you're talking about is kind of creating a neutral affect. And I think yep. what they're looking to do is, is have a, is to combat, you know, and to put you in a position where you become their enemy. And I think a lot of parents and teen advocates that are listening right now find themselves in that role of they get into a yelling match with their kid. And I totally get why it happens, but there's just nowhere to go uh, from there. And so having sort of that neutral affect, you let them kind of blow it out and like, okay, well, what's really going on? I've had so much success with teens being able to do that because they're like, oh, well, I, I got nothing really to hate this guy about. It's not really about him. And, and it gives them the opportunity to take responsibility for themselves, as he said in rule number one, and uh, also to come up with a plan that is really generated by them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes uh, that question, what's really going on, is difficult for an adolescent to answer. Because remember, their brain is not fully developed. The corpus callosum doesn't really fully develop um, until age 25. The corpus callosum is that intricate bundle of nerve between right brain and left brain. Um, and remember, their, their, their frontal cortex has a huge growing spurt between 13 and 20. So when you're asking an adolescent, you know, what were they thinking – they probably weren't. And, and when they say, I wasn't really thinking, they're not kidding. Um, they just don't have the capacity to, to do that higher level of thinking, thinking yet simply because of brain development. Again, that when you go to you know, what, what's really going on, know that there's a good chance they're, they're not going to be able to identify it. So when they get stuck, hey, you know, so what's really going on here? And they get stuck. All right, so let's take a step back. Help me understand what, you know, how you got to feel this way. Help me understand what, you know, what the first trigger was, you know, where this really started, and just keep bringing them back to helping you understand because it comes from such a non-judgmental place. That statement right. is so non-judgmental and it's so supportive that, it, again, it takes the fire out of the anger. Adolescents right. oftentimes are going to use their, you know, overutilize their emotions as a way to kind of try to keep them safe from being judged or being or hearing the word no, and it gives them a semblance, you know, some semblance of a feeling of control. You know, it it feels like that a lot of uh, parents and and uh, teen advocates create a relationship with teens that is both argumentative. It's their voice tone is like in a constant yelling. Quite honestly. Um, what is what is happening there? What how how can we avoid that? What is what is happening there? Well, you know, one of the things that often happens in our families is that we allow things to build up without dealing with them, you know, initially. So you know, it could it's that it's that old saying about the marriage that fell apart because the husband wouldn't put the cat back on the toothpaste. You know, 15 years into the right. marriage, and she's ready to leave him over the cap on the toothpaste. And he goes, oh, you never said anything to me about it. Sure, I'll put the cap on the toothpaste. That's no big deal. Um, <laughs> but if you, don't, if you don't deal with those things as they come up, we know that they build anger, and we know that they build resentments. And as they build those anger and resentments, that neutral affect that you were talking about, Mark, it's almost yeah. not possible. It's not yeah. possible because we've got, we've got so much energy, energy built into, you know, every conversation and then we eventually end up in the position where we expect every conversation we have with our adolescent or adolescent with their parent to have a flavor of an argument. So, uh, you know, what we fear we create. As we begin to expect it, we start to create it by the way we approach it. So our job as parents, our job, because 
believe me, I, um, I have three adult children now and uh, working on raising up a couple of grandkids here. Uh, they're my next-door neighbors. But um, I'm telling you, our job as parents is to really do our own work, to really make sure that we are, you know, we're paying attention to where we're at. We're very mindful of staying current and staying present and being able to deal with our emotions as they come up and not just with our relationship with our adolescent because it may be between parents that there's some tension and whatnot. If we don't deal with that, it has a tendency to spill over to the rest of the family. So dealing with our own stuff, making sure that we're doing our own work is probably the most important thing that we can do as parents. Be a healthy parent, be a healthy individual so that you can be a healthy parent. You know, it's a great point, and I could really relate to it. I, I feel like, you know, early in my parenting, I was a bit of a frustrated parent, and just dealing with my own frustration, I found that I, I really, once I had dealt with that, I, I stopped yelling at my kids, you know. It, it just eased all that tension. When you're talking, I think, about women and mothers and ladies that are, even female teachers sometimes, and this might be a generalization, but I find that sometimes – there's pressure on them, especially when they're dealing with teenage boys that are bigger than them. They don't have the sort of that deep voice to command that they find themselves in, in more of a yelling role. Now, this, this is a little different than maybe working out what's going on inside. Um, what, what can they do to be more maybe authoritative, um, you know, still, still be in charge when they've got maybe these, these smaller voices? You know, one of the things that is really, really, uh, is really, really difficult for, especially for single moms of giant teenage boys, is to assert themselves and 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 be able to hold those boundaries. Um, oftentimes, they don't feel like they have, you know, they have any backup. Um, you know, there's no maybe the dad's not in the picture, or maybe the dad's combative and, and actually adversarial when it comes to when it comes to parenting together. And that does make it very difficult. And so the, the key is, and the, here's the hard part, the key is to start really early. Um, start really early establishing that you are a mother that, or, or a female role model that is going to hold very healthy boundaries and that if you set limits and you set consequences, that you're going to stick with them. And you're going to stick with them every time. The number one thing that I hear from teenagers that has kind of gotten them in a mess is, you know what, my parents didn't really follow through with the consequences that they laid out. They were not consistent. So I didn't really know what the rules were. The rules were the rules sometimes. So right. I highly encourage moms to stand strong. You don't have to yell, but be assertive. Be direct and confront in a loving and gentle manner. Be very direct, but confront in a loving and gentle manner. And then levy your consequences just like you said you're going to. Mandatory rules, there, there are three different kinds of rules. Mandatory rules are maybe the most important, and they're also the most rare. The rule is, is that it's very, mandatory rules very clearly defined. The consequence is clearly defined. And then there's monitoring, and the consequences are, are levied consistently. Um, we, yeah. have, we have a lot of optional rules. It's kind of a rule that are, most parent, households have a lot of optional rules. They're the rules that the parents want followed, but they're not very clearly defined, and we don't follow through very consistently. So it's kind of like a suggested retail price. So yeah. it, just simply, it just simply doesn't work very well. So moms, it's confusing. Stand, 
Yes, it really is. And remember, adolescents are already confused just simply by the overload of information. Um, you know, just hand, a, hand an adolescent a smartphone and see what happens. Um, you know, their brains just simply disengage from reality because there's so many other stimuli. So moms, stand very strong, hold healthy boundaries, make sure that your rules and expectations are very clearly laid out, and be very assertive, but do so in a respectful manner. Because if you do it in a disrespectful manner, I almost guarantee you that's what you're going to get in return. Is this the same advice you would give to a teacher who's got, you know, a female teacher who's got a kid rolling into the uh, classroom, is it just like from day one, setting was bad? It's kind of basically the exact same thing that you said. Absolutely. And the nice thing about being in a school district is you've got, um, I've been on the local school board, uh, board chair for about 21 years now, so I'm, I'm very aware of our behavior management policy and um, help design some of it. So I, here's what I can tell you is that in the school district, in a, in a mechanism like that, you have policy and procedure to be able to back you up. You have a behavior management plan to help back you up. And it's part of what we can bring into our households to a certain degree. It's certainly not going to look like you can send them to the principal if, you know, if, they're, if they're disobeying you in your household. But know, know what your plan is. Know what your plan is. Sit down. Go, go hire a professional to help you, you know, help you come up with a behavior management plan to help design the rules for your home. Know what your values are. Know what helps you to decide what the rules are. You know, our number one job as a parent is to keep our children safe. So obviously, there will be certain rules that are designed just out of keeping our children safe. Right. Um, and if that's, you know, if, if safety is the number one issue, then you kind of work down to, you know, respect. Maybe respect is the next value in your home, and you start to design rules that are, that are about respect. Okay, and, and that's, a, that's a great segue uh, for my, my really last question, which is um, how, much, how much abuse should we take from teens? They've got these fluctuating hormones you talked about sort of taking a neutral effect and, and sort of, you know, just understanding that they're, that's, this is going to happen. But how much abuse should we uh, be willing to take as parents, as teen advocates, when kids are, are showing up. I mean, literally, you know, my, my teen, you know, some days he's, he's talkative. Some days he's very silent. Uh, and, and when he's silent, you've got to be like, oh, this isn't anything personal. You've got to go through those, those conversations with yourself. But what if they are sort of reacting in a way that it's just like, kind of abusive, quite honestly? Well, here's what I can tell you. What we allow will continue. So we teach people how to treat us. If we allow, you know, if we allow a little bit of disrespect, then we're going to get, you know, if, if we allow a one or a two on a disrespect scale, then we're going to, they're going to try a three and a four. If we allow the three and the four, they're going to continue to inch up the scale until they're, until they're as disrespectful as they can figure out how to be. I would encourage you to nip the, the, the disrespect very early and to do so by identifying what the disrespect was and then identifying that, you know, that behavior will not be tolerated. Um, you can give a verbal warning the first time, and then a consequence must be levied the second time. Um, and if you are consistent with that, you'll probably find that that behavior starts to curtail. And remember, consequences have to hurt, guys. I, I mean, I wish it, wish it didn't didn't have to be that way, but if the consequence doesn't create some sort of adverse reaction from an adolescent, the consequence doesn't matter.
And when you're consistent, you realize that the consequences don't have to come that often because they know they're coming and they, they avoid that kind of, that kind of response. Absolutely. Yeah. I worked in these therapeutic boarding schools and whatnot. I can tell you that the staff that have the least, you know, struggle in their job are the ones that simply follow the rules of the time. Nobody's 100%. But those, the, the more you follow the rules, you follow the, hand, the student handbook, you stay consistent to it, the less likely you are to have difficulties with those, you know, with those kids that are in your, kind of in your little venue. And if your venue is your home, the more consistent you are with following the rules of your house, the more likely you are uh, to have problems. Mike Linderman, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I've, I've been a big admirer of you for a long time. I watch you from afar, and you're a great family man, and, and you really do uh, walk the talk. I, I want to thank you for being on the show. Is there, is there anything you could tell us about how we can get your book, how we can find out more about what you're up to? Um, you, you know, I'm, a, I'm maybe the world's worst um, self-promoter. Um, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I... I don't. I don't have a website. Um, I don't push the book and whatnot. And, you know, the book was written in 2007. You can, you can find it on Amazon. Um, you know, you can probably find it in the bargain bin at your local bookstore and whatnot. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to send it up here, I'll inscribe it and, and send it back to you. You know what? You can just simply you can find me. Um, I've got a Facebook page, and uh, you can you know it's just it's just my personal one, Mike Linderman. Um, you can find me there. You know, but if you really if you really need to look real hard for me, well, get a hold of Mark and he'll get you in touch with me. Absolutely. In uh, in listeners, get the book. It's a wonderful book. Uh, you'll really feel like you you're getting to know Mike a lot better. Uh, Mike, so great to uh, visit with you. Thanks again for being on the show. All right, Mark. Thanks for having me, sir. Well, what a wonderful conversation with Montana cowboy and therapist Mike Linderman. Uh, check him out. Check his book out, The Teen Whisperer. It's a great read. I can tell you that from experience. Hey, if you've been thinking about becoming a uh, facilitator of the O-Shift for Teens workshop kit, there's no time like the present. We've made it super affordable for you to do that. And one of the things that came up in last week's conversation with Dr. Andy Fletcher is we wrote these programs really to be coaching programs so you can Use coaching skills, which is really about conversation skills, listening and asking the right questions to get kids thinking and help them to become part of their own solution. And that's what we're all about. Check it out. Head over to oshift.com. Look at the Becoming a Facilitator tab and uh, find out how easy it is to become a facilitator, whether that's in an organization or whether you're trying to put on your own workshops. And if you have any questions about that or anything, you can email me at mark at oshift.com. I love to get your emails. You can also make comments about this podcast right under the podcast link on the podcast page. Hey, and listen, share it with other parents because these are conversations that can benefit those that work with teens, those that have teens. Don't keep it to yourself. Share, share, and share more. Uh, thanks again for joining me this week. Forward to another great conversation coming up next week. Uh, so we will see you in just seven short days. All right. Have a great one. Bye bye.